The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. It's been making many of them right in San Antonio, Texas since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market, making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. That's K-A-C-O-newenergy.com. And now on to our show, a live version of the podcast recorded in front of an audience at GTM's Solar Summit in Scottsdale, Arizona. Enjoy the show. We had a lot of fun at this one. This is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this week we are live at Green Tech Media Solar Summit in Scottsdale, Arizona. This week is California the New Germany. We are in Arizona right now, of course, but California's making news as state regulators take another serious look at retail choice. The CPUC released a white paper this week documenting the stunning decline of the customer base for investor-owned utilities in the state. Meanwhile, California is facing more and more curtailments, negative electricity pricing, and on top of it all, a solar eclipse coming up in August. So what can we learn about market design from the nation's solar leader? Then getting to terawatt-scale PV. Researchers and policymakers are getting serious about thousands and thousands of gigawatts of solar in the coming decades, and they're asking some hard questions about market design. So we'll broaden our look at California into uh, principles for market design. Um, then we'll tap into the angst in the room that I think a lot of people are, are feeling. Um, we're going to have a fast cycle through some of the top news stories, and we'll ask, how worried should you be? Um, you know, personally, my angst levels drop a little bit when I'm joined by these two, my two co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is our political soothsayer. She's based in Washington. She is the co-founder and a partner at 38 North Solutions, and I think responsible for a lot of the major policy developments that uh, you see happening in Washington that are, you know, benefit this industry. Catherine, how are you? Great. You're our window into Washington. The window's oh, a little dirty right now. That is terrifying. Yeah, it's like a peephole. But thank you. It's great to be here. And the co-host with the business acumen is Jigger Shaw. He is the president of Generate Capital. He's based in New York City. He's also our resident contrarian, the nicest contrarian you'll ever meet. <laughs> I'm shocked that it's cooler here in Arizona than it is in New York City. We're going to start off with a couple of big stories that are top of mind, and then we're going to work our way through a bunch of headlines and try to provide some context to the madness. First up is California. Listeners may remember the conversation we published in March with Michael Picker, the president of the CPUC, who floated this idea to redo retail choice in the state. The last retail choice experiment didn't work out so well, of course, but things have changed, and Picker argues that retail choice is already here in California. There just aren't that, that many clear rules around it, so they want to establish rules. Currently, 25% of investor-owned utility customers now get their electricity from a third party, and that number could rise to 80% by 2020. That's just remarkable. So 
At the same time, wholesale markets are in transition. Gigawatts of capacity are getting curtailed around the state. Prices are dipping into negative territory with greater frequency. And uh, as we've detailed at this conference, there are cha structural changes underway in the, in the state's solar market. And we've, of course, seen a decline uh, in the state in terms of residential install installations. And the belly of the duck curve is getting fatter. So what does this all add up to? Um, Catherine, what do you make of the context for retail choice today. Why now? Why is California having this conversation yet again? Yeah, one of the key things you said is 25% of the load is unbundled from the IOUs. So right there, you have almost a million folks signed up for our community as community choice aggregators. Um, there's direct access providers that have been around for a while. And all these policies in place, like the 50% RPS, the California Solar Initiative, the Energy Storage Mandate, their greenhouse gas reduction goals, all of these kind of combine at a time when we have really ready solutions that are starting to deploy faster than policy can keep up with it. And so I think what Picker is doing is laying out, like, I'm not going to say what it's going to look like. He's not, he doesn't have any predetermined conclusion. But like, and in the end, it may be a roadmap, he says. But let's start the conversation so we can figure out how do you do this in a way that still maintains reliability, allows for a resilient um, infrastructure um, allows you know for cost-effective and equitable solutions and also stays within those goals and that can look like a whole bunch of different things in different places for different consumers. Jigger any thoughts on how it should look? Um, there are a lot of different ways you could uh, approach retail choice in, in California. Um, do, are there any sort of principles to retail choice you think are important as the state considers this transition? Well, I think it's, it's important to recognize how we got here, which is that um, the guy, I had a lot to do with the Kaiser Permanente deal where they you know, did centralized uh, solar and wind and then are having it wheeled to their hospitals. But the reason that they were able to do that is because they were grandfathered. They were wheeling solar to the hospitals? It, wheeling <laughs> it, through an ambulance. But they, um, they actually uh, they had a lot of facilities that were grandfathered under the direct access program before it got cut off, right? So those are the only facilities that are allowed to do that. So all the rest of the facilities they built, brand new facilities, are not allowed to, to participate in that program, right? And they're paying less for power because yeah, of that, so right? For the, and for the direct access projects, before they did the wheeling, they ended up, they were at like 10 cents a kilowatt hour, I think after the run eight and a half. Um, but for, for facilities that are just directly on utility tariffs, they're probably at 15. And so you can imagine at some point, you know, they're lobbyists in, Sacramento is like, hey, when are we going to have the rest of our facilities, you know, be able to take advantage of this thing that we're doing over here, which is clean, green energy? Um, and what it's leading to is a tremendous amount of support for these community choice aggregation um, folks, right? Marin County, Sonoma, others who are all saying, yeah, like, we'd love to secede from the union and like, basically create our own sort of community choice aggregation where now we have a board and we have the ability to say we want to be 100% clean energy if we want to. And there's problems with them doing it because they don't really have great credit. And so figuring out how the PPA gets funded and all that stuff has been difficult. But my sense is a picker was just responding to the politics of the fact that everyone is calling him saying, I want to leave my utility. Why does my neighbor have the ability to leave the utility? He's part of the 25%. I'm actually not part of the 25% and I want in on that action. And so I don't, but I don't know how they get there. If everyone in the state is allowed to drop their utility prices from 15 to nine, that's a huge amount of money that gets sucked out of 
the system, right? The utilities, it's important to note the utilities are fine. California has created some sort of like communistic regime by the fact that the utilities are always fine, right? They're unbundled, they have whatever, energy efficiency doesn't bother them, nothing bothers them. They have this like protected status, you know, a la Hal Harvey and his like crazy maniacal strategies. And so the utilities are sort of like, we're supposed to be incentivized to help, but I don't know that we want to because we don't really want to. And and so they're in this weird place. So I don't actually think Michael knows what he wants to do. I think he's just like, I'm getting a bunch of pressure, so I probably should say something. And now let's start a process. Yeah, to be fair. And that process will begin uh, officially this week. And the white paper really was about laying out questions. Yeah, poorly written white ask. paper, but yeah. <laughs> a lot of good questions, though. <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm just saying, you it better wouldn't serve meet Travis Bradford's uh, Columbia University status, status here. <laughs> Yeah, Clean Energy Group just released a study on, you know, how do we serve low-income customers um, with solar in California, and their conclusion is we need more energy storage. And I think really what we need to do is look at, you know, a whole lot of integrated solutions. So you're not just looking, I mean, I'm a big storage booster, but we also need to look at demand response, advanced energy management, all these other tools and technologies, smart inverters, that need to be looked at a little more holistically when when we're doing planning out there. And I think that's where this conversation will get us. Yeah, but isn't California doing that already, right? So how is this process different from that? Well, this, I mean, it, it's, we don't know because this process right. doesn't, yeah, it isn't defined. It doesn't exist yet. It's just a poorly written white paper. Yeah. Yeah. But I, look, I think that, that the, the diversity of, of areas in which California has moved because of this freeze on direct access has caused a lot of people um, angst because they want it to be more controlled. And it hasn't been controlled, and so they're sort of saying, wait a second, let's bring it back a framework by which we characterize what CCAs are supposed to be, for instance, right? I mean, it's entirely possible that Marin County or Sonoma or others actually become more local and say, you know what, even though we could save money by being part of a greater whole, we don't want to be part of a greater whole. So we're all going to agree to basically put up $200 million and become one big fat microgrid for Marin County because we kind of want to, right? And, and you know, and I think that Picker and others don't want that to happen without some sort of planning and framework um, occurring. Right. And so really important stat from that white paper, there are almost a million people who are now part of CCAs in California, which is quite striking. And there's like another 20 that are on the docket. I mean, there's there's so much money going into CCA formation right now. The question is, if you have all these CCAs and you let them do what they want, um, don't, how, how are they a part of California's resource adequacy requirements, right? What is their responsibility for ensuring that their procurement benefits the larger grid? Should there be a responsibility, and how do you weigh those as, as a regulator? And I think that's one of the big questions that they're, they're asking. Do you let these cities just go out on their own, or do they have to be a part of these broader resource adequacy questions and paying for the upkeep of the grid for everyone's benefit? And that's in a lot of ways the ISO question not just the utility question. So it's how does the ISO work with the, within this structure and it, whatever the structure ends up being. And, I mean, that's a big conversation that's happening right now on a federal level is how do we, how do the ISOs deal with markets and California is slightly different from PJM, from, you know, other ones. And I think, you know, that's that remains to be seen and is the ISO going to grow? So we're going to be able to bring in technologies from the neighboring states and really all be able to participate in a larger market that, that is kind of out there, too, given mm-hmm. that a lot of these consumers are being more disaggregated. Yeah. I think there's, there's two ways I would interject there. One is that 
the CCAs are basically dumbed down municipal utilities, right? right. They don't really have the the responsibility to control the wires that's still PG&E or, or a CE or whatever. Um, they're really just sort of one big aggregation pool with sort of opt-out qualities around um, around aggregating them up and then negotiating on their behalf for electricity. Um, and because of the permanence of them, they can actually uh, sign power purchase agreements to have you know local resources being built, right? So I don't think they're actually signing up to take on the responsibility and resource ad- adequacy. Um, that, that, that term, though, has become quite loaded, and I would say that even in New York, um, there's a big conversation happening around whether utility companies are even good at it. Um, that what, what's happening is that there's a conversation being you had. You think they should get rid of the requirement? Well, I mean, there's a conversation happening around whether we should get rid of that requirement, because utility companies are using it as a crutch for undereducated politicians to say, like, we need another $5 billion because otherwise we're going to have rolling blackouts. And the politician's saying, well, if you really think you need it, then maybe we have to do it. And, we're, and all the c- companies coming to your Grid Edge conference or other things are saying, actually, we can do it for $500 million. But the utility is saying, well, we don't make enough money at $500 million. And so, so there's this When you say that on. we can do it for $500 million, what are you referring to? Like, what kind of alternative solutions are you referring to? Well, like the I non-wires think that, alternatives? Well, and well, first, I think what we're saying is, is that the utility company believes that they need, like, N plus 2 reliability. So that if, like, multiple events occur on the grid, that they can continue to provide reliable power. What we're finding is, is that the way in which they're doing it, it still has a 1970s flavor to it. And that 1970s flavor is really expensive. Labor costs are up, steel costs are up, cement costs are up, whatever. And so instead of doing it that way, finding out what the pain points are in the system, whether it's 50 hours worth of peak demand or whatever it is, and actually um, addressing that, whether it's demand response or load control or permanent upgrades using energy efficiency. Um, all of these technologies are technologies that have been around for a long time, and sensors are now you know, practically free, so you can do it much more cost-effectively than you could 10 years ago. Um, and we've been faced with this sort of death by pilot, where SGG&E has had a pilot on this, and SEE's had a pilot on this, and others, but they're not actually using these resources in a way that's systematically providing 6.9's reliability for the grid. And, they will soon have to. Well, and the Public Service Commission is trying to figure out how to force them to because they're not properly staffed to be able to provide them with a clear sort of guideline saying you must do this. So they're saying here are the broad market rules, which is what Rev was trying to do in New York, saying under these market rules you're incentivized to give us better ideas that's not working. Clearly, Rev is not working. Yeah. And so they're now saying, well, maybe we should just get rid of the requirement of the utilities to provide high reliability power and, and just you know, like RFP that out to the private sector. I can imagine there are a number of utilities rolling their eyes in this room right now. Oh, they're rolling their eyes all the time. But like, you know, like, but that's what losing all the time sort of means, is that you like finally end up going, oh, crap, we should actually do something about this one day. Well, what I don't understand is that how you can sit there and say they should be doing, you know, all this demand response, load control, a lot of the, I think, somewhat untested residential demand response uh, and demand side management as far as California is trying to deploy it. And what you're saying is that a proven sort of resource adequacy tactic is worse than something that is still largely unproven on the scale that you're, saying, you're talking about. I'm not about. saying anything and except to say that, like, that 
increasing people's electricity rates by 5 to 7% a year is unstable, right? The politicians will lose their job on a regular basis if that continues. And we have technologies that I believe are pretty stable and that, you know, GE and Siemens and others have actually bought some of these companies because they believe that they're stable. And, you know, we have, we have proof points. I mean, Enernoc really did save the entire PJM and Nepal grid with, you know, during the polar vortex. Um, and I don't think that, you know, like spending $2 billion on a new gas pipeline into the city of Boston is going to be the most cost-effective way to provide reliability in that market, right? And, and so you start to have these conversations that resemble a pattern, and they happen over and over and over again to the point where you start to get through to regulators and others who say, actually, the stuff that Catherine's been talking about for 15 years might be a good idea. Yeah, and you need to change what they're rewarded for. So you have to change it to be performance, and you can change those metrics. I mean, I think part of it is they don't necessarily have all the solutions, the utilities. But there are all these third parties out there that do. So try to figure out, you know, how do you make this work where, you know, everybody gets to benefit, the utility knows what they're being rewarded for and how they stay in business and what their business really is. In all this stuff, Picker wants to leave PV's legacy behind, right? I mean, PV's legacy in California has been, you know, let's build as much expensive stuff as possible to make the utilities happy, and let's do all the innovation to make the innovators happy. And that's a recipe for high costs, right? So you can't, like at some point, the innovations have to offset the old school stuff, and that's not happening. Like when you look at the LCR contracts in Southern California Edison's territory, the reason that was held back for two years under lawsuits was because Southern California Edison wanted to rate base two large natural gas plants in that same docket, right? So the eight contracts that were approved there with AMS and STEM and Evapricool and Ice Energy were bundled with two big natural gas plants that weren't needed, that everyone knows are not needed, but they're saying is needed. And, you know, it's like, well, whatever, it's two billion bucks. Let's just rate base it. And two billion dollars is not, even in California is a large amount of money. Like, you know, you can't. And, you know, like at the same time, Calpine and others who are on the private sector side are shutting down natural gas plants because there's not enough market signals within the California ISO to keep them open. Right. So so we are getting closer to an existential crisis in California around business as usual. And Mike and Picker is trying to figure out, like, well, how do I do this without, you know, sort of upsetting the apple cart too much? So I want to ground this, ground the context here. And then I do want to talk about wholesale market design, which is another issue that, you know, California is dealing with and expansion of the regional market to, um, to, to, to manage some of the utility scale solar that is getting curtailed. I was struck by this conclusion in the white paper that I thought was actually pretty remarkable. They said, as a fundamental framing consideration, it's crucial to recognize that whatever the specific outcomes, it is very difficult to conceive of a scenario where the CPUC and CEC will not find that significant changes to the regulatory model and the utility structure are required. So, uh, you know, th- this is a very uniquely California approach, right? Struck, so a lot of you states were struck say, by a statement that was so obvious. Yeah, but to, like, no, but, but a lot that. of states. Well, let, let's 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 be clear here. Like a lot of states might say, we have this we have this problem. How do you slow growth, not how do you accelerate it? And that's a unique California approach to sort of proactively managing a problem, you know, that, as you say, an existential crisis for, for California's grid. Well, which, I do think that that's a unique approach. Look, I mean, I love California, and I've certainly made a lot of my money in California, so I thank them for that. Um, but, but I think that the notion that California has... 
like come to this through leadership is crazy, right? I mean, California basically has been the poster child of what not to do on the regulatory side, right? They're, they're great on innovation, they're great on all sorts of stuff, but on the regulatory side, like New York was forced to come up with its own model because California refused to do so. But we have no idea how New York's model is no, even going to work. No, it, and it, it hasn't worked. I mean, so I'm, how can I'm you call fully, it a success? I'm fully admitting that it hasn't worked yet, but, like, but I just think that California has has pushed off this decision for a very long time. And they said, well, we're going to do unbundling, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. And now they're faced with the fact that, you know, that Kaiser Permanente or Walmart or others actually have the ability to bypass the utility altogether, right? That they actually have the ability to just build solar in the middle of the desert and wind and actually just, like, wheel it to them. And that, that all of the essential functions of the utility are becoming less and less essential to the point where they're actually dismantling the purpose for the utility to be there, right? If they don't quickly put in a new regulatory regime by which the utility becomes buttressed again, it's entirely possible that California will just have to merge everything together into one big sort of reliability organization, and they just merge PG&E, SDG&E, and everybody else together into one company with the California ISO and say, we are now basically just a reliability organization, and everyone can do whatever the hell they want, right? I mean, and that's where we're headed. If everybody becomes a CCA, and they start having their own financial ability to sign PPAs and other things, then what is the utility left to do except, you know, to basically serve the poor and the elderly? Right, but this is a new phenomenon. It's Planning for this five years predicted. ago is completely different they than, than talking about it now. They could have predicted this five years ago. We, we're all talking about it on the Energy Gang four years ago. Like, they could have absolutely predicted this four years ago, and now Mike is finally saying, ugh, I guess I kind of have to do this sooner rather than later. But, like, but like when he was on the Energy Gang, we talked about this. Like, literally, if you listen back to that episode... We were like, hey, you, you like have this job because PV refused to do this. Are you willing to do this? He's like, yeah, I'm going to take real leadership in this. And now he's finally kind of saying, okay, fine, I'm forced to do it. Yeah, but the cost of solutions have already been, have, have also been falling dramatically. Like 18 months, 75% reduction in lithium-ion batteries, and it's just continue, going to continue to go over the next couple of years, lower and lower. And I think you know, part of that is because California created a market for it through a specific a policy specific to energy storage. Um, and that's part of what they've done is they've, they've done all these individual technology-specific... Everything segmented, right. Yeah, um, different policies that have created a market and created the ability for people to come in and drive down costs of technologies. And now they're ready to deploy, but now we've got to kind of figure out how it's all going to work together. Any thoughts or not. <laughs> on whether this will be a successful transition on the retail side? I mean, I know it's incredibly early to say, um, but, you know, Jigger, you're, you're not very positive about the, the I don't, factors I don't in understand. California. So no, no, I'm very positive about California. Does that influence California. the outcome? I'm very positive about California for the... I don't understand what retail means. Like, I don't, I don't think they're going to say, oh, yeah, direct access is now open for everyone to access, right? So I think they're going to broaden the definition of retail. And, and also establish and, clear rules right. for and cost so, shifting and upkeep of the grid. Right, so and, I think the retail thing is sort of a red herring. But I, I do think that the thing that makes me hopeful is that California has by far the smartest people in the world on these issues, right? I mean, they just they all live there, and they are engaged, and there are, like, the intellectual horsepower is available when they're ready to make these changes to actually come up with a, a negotiated settlement on how this would look. And, um, and, and then once it's in place, you have institutions that are paying people to make sure that it gets implemented properly. 
right? In a way that New York has intellectual horsepower, for instance, but I don't think they actually have people that are paid to monitor the process for the next three years to like actually make sure it gets rolled out effectively. Um, and so New York is sort of like, you know, not, not as prepared to do that as California is. I don't know. What we don't want to have happen is what happened in the last energy crisis in California where you had taken the genie out of the bottle and they stuffed it back in and now it's back out. I don't think we want to stuff it back in because then you're just feeding into the narrative that Rick Perry and the, incum- the fossil incumbents are saying, which is, well, you know, you've got to have baseload because this, all this other stuff is just creating all kinds of problems. We don't want to have that to happen. But what's different is what Jigger said, which is the consumers are much more engaged. And this is lifestyle choices. This is about, like, I'm a smart consumer, and these are things that I want, and these are things that I demand. And that's changed dramatically over the last two decades. And I think that's where we're going to see the difference. And that's why we're not going to be able to put the gene back in. And then just one shout-out is I do think that the work that Julia Hamm has been doing at SEPA on this 51st state regulatory work has, I think, really moved the ball forward in a big way. I think that when you read all the white papers on their website, et cetera, like it's starting to give folks who are smart but not engaged in this, like sort of a lay of the land of like, well, here are the eight different ways this could go, and here are the pluses or minuses between the eight different ways, which is much better than, I think, where we were when REV was started. Yeah. I think the REV process has been helpful in this as well because yeah. you've had so many competing oh, yeah. proposals and ideas that have been thrown out there for the yeah, first time. Yeah, everybody's learning. Yes. Yeah. And other states are learning too. No, I think your point on the, the baseload study is actually really important is that this is a broader conversation than California. California isn't just facing a sort of potential retail and wholesale market crisis, this is, there's a broad political context to this. Like, they are proving to the rest of the country that they can manage this amount of distributed renewables in a, in a, competitive, in a, in a cost-competitive way. And that will determine, um, you know, if they can do that in the next couple of years, I think that will determine the, the way that people talk about this stuff through this administration and beyond. Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about wholesale market design. I think the, the last point is, what does California do to expand its grid? Should it expand its grid to accommodate more utility-scale renewables that are now getting curtailed? This well, is a big I mean, issue it, as well. It is something that will happen. I mean, I have, you know, I think said multiple times that I don't want it to be the first move. Um, I, you know, I think California, for better or for worse, requires some sort of crisis, small hopefully, uh, that occurs to get them to do the right thing. Um, and so there are a lot of tools at their disposal on the demand response load control side that would allow them to have a better functioning wholesale market. They also have a lot of endeavors around controlling electric vehicle load, which have not actually been realized. They've got um, you know, battery storage, which still doesn't have a clear market signal within the California ISO as to how to get paid to participate in that market. And so you've got a lot of these um, opportunities, and I don't want them to continue to languish because we're just going to like increase the balancing area to include Oregon and other states. I'd rather them actually get this distributed innovation right and then increase the balancing area. We're going to take a quick break from our live show to talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. Keiko was also a sponsor of the Solar Summit, so thanks for that. Keiko is one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, to top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. 
Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. All right. Well, I think it's time to move on. So we're going to talk about PV at the terawatt scale and maybe apply some of these lessons in California to the country as a whole and, um, you know, the market design broadly in countries around the world. So the situation in California is forcing a lot of people to think deeply about the future of electricity market design. And, And with a global terawatt scale solar market looming right ahead of us, the hard choices that a few states and countries are making will be made all over the world. So at this conference, we're largely focused on the here and now, right? What's going to impact your business right now? But it's helpful to expand our thinking to imagine what happens when you get to, say, 20% global electricity generation from PV in the next couple of decades. Um, We're seeing more and more research and planning on this front. Just this month, the global team of researchers um, put together by NREL published this piece in the journal Science looking at where solar and storage costs need to be in order to get to between one and eight terawatts of solar installed. And interestingly, their estimates are kind of they're in line with technological and market design progress. Um, the investment bank UBS recently put out a report saying that solar would be the default resource in most countries around the world uh, in, the, in the coming decade. Um, beating out coal, gas, and nuclear. We've seen similar analyses from a bunch of other outfits. And the International Energy Agency, historically extraordinarily conservative, now believes that solar will become the dominant source of electricity by 2050. And given its assumptions about solar growth, we can probably say that that may be um, somewhat conservative as well. So, And, of course, Shale Khan talked about this in his opening presentation yesterday. It's something that we're thinking about at GTM because we're faced with some of these massive scaling challenges now. Um, so what I guess what I want to know is what the world looks like with that much solar, right? Um, it'll be a sunny place. It'll be a sunny place. <laughs> the, I mean, are we on a path to making solar default technologies is the good way to set it up. You know, do you, do you believe in what UBS and GTM research and and others are saying about solar really taking a massive share well, of think, electricity generation. I mean, of course we do, right? I mean, we wrote it in black and white in 2007, and now folks are copying what we wrote back in 07, so I feel good about that. But You know, one anecdote I do like to share is that Greenpeace put out its Revolution Now report in 2006. While I was on the board. And, right, and, gro- and, and, <laughs> and they showed extraordinary growth rates that everyone laughed at. And if you look at IEA and EIA scenarios look, and others, I mean, they were really slow. And then it turns out that the that Greenpeace's projections were below the growth rates that I, we look, saw I, through 2016. I, yeah, and I look. I mean, Travis Bradford's in the in the front row here, and Travis wrote the book, literally, Solar Revolution, which predicted all this stuff back in 2004. And um, and I remember, you know, buying him beer in apps at the Capitol Hill Brewery across from Greenpeace's office. And we were talking about this in 04 and 05 and doing all that stuff, right? And then Travis's organization, like, became Green Tech Media Research, like, when he merged into GTM with the Prometheus Institute. Like, we've been talking about this for a very long time. I'm glad that all these other people have now validated our work and all the work of the people in this room. So, look, you know, give all of you guys a hand because this is why we're here. Um, look, I, I, I think that... I think that 
there are a lot of people out there who believe that we are in this place right now because um, solar was inevitable. And solar clearly had certain you know, benefits around capturing the imagination and having a lot of folks who were rooting for it. But it wasn't inevitable, right? There was a lot of work that we all did in business model innovation, financial innovation, policy innovation. We did a lot of work on R&D, R &D, technology. Um, and, and I think when you look at like the, the exhibition here at this summit, there's a lot of enabling technologies around reducing soft costs and sales and, and engineering and all of those things. And I think that's why we're here. And I think that the countries around the world who are deploying this stuff at scale, whether it's China or India or, or others, are absolutely using U.S. technology, right, that's being shared with them um, to be able to integrate solar into their grids, to be able to figure out how um, the policy mechanisms can best work to attract billion-dollar scale money from international institutions to be able to, like, you know, come into there, whether it's from OPEC or Exim. And so I just think that, I think that, that, I'm very proud of the fact that this group has actually come together and validated our industry's work. But I do think that um, it, the work continues, and it will take an, a tremendous amount of work over the next 10 years to be able to meet the, the conclusions of this report. Yeah, some of the things they say have to happen to build on what we have is um, cost continue to come down, performance go up, um, the cost of manufacturing and installation going down, having more flexible grids to be able to use all these resources, um, the continuing rise of demand for electricity, so switching so that we are having more of an electrified future, and then also progress in storage, but I would, I would also argue a lot of other technologies to continue the progress. And I think there are things that we don't even exactly know how they're going to impact it, like how is blockchain going to function in this? How is, I think there's some things out there that can really provide step changes that we don't know about. And all of this, I think we still need to, to really consider the human impact all, all along the way. The human impact on the jobs, a human impact in consumer engagement, but also the human impact of of people who are currently working in industries that are dying or manufacturing sectors that are dying and how do we take care of those and how do we make sure that we transition every, bring sure. everybody along with us also the sustainable development goals right yep. and how like this expansion of five to ten terawatts is actually going to bring 1.3 billion million billion people um, electricity that they badly yes. need to improve their lives right so so we've talked a lot about this on the show whether or not people are recognizing the um, economic competitiveness and enormous growth in the, the industry. And what they see is that one chart that's up there that shows solar represents 2% of the electricity mix and 2% of the global electricity mix and are not really looking at like project-level economics or um, some of the more local factors that are contributing to an explosive growth in the industry. And I wonder, Catherine, whether you... So Jigger argues that, like, finally, these big institutions are recognizing what people have been saying for the last decade... Are decision makers starting to recognize that, or are we still years behind that narrative taking shape in a meaningful way? I think because it, it depends feels like on, it is yeah, way I, behind. I think it depends on which decision makers you're talking about. So I think in some parts of the world, yes. And I think you know, if you look at the Paris Agreement, holistically people are all kind of moving in the same direction. Um, I think there are going to be some bumps along the way. I think right now we're in a little bit of a unknown uh, territory in the U.S. 
Um, I think globally, though, everybody's kind of going the same direction. And this this work that I'm doing in the World Economic Forum, a lot of the oil majors are in my cohort, and they're all saying the same thing. Everybody's saying it's going to be more distributed, it's going to be more solar. And are they interested in solar, or they they oh, seem to be yes. more interested in wind and offshore wind? No, are they talking about solar? Oh, yes, very much so. Solar, storage, very distributed resources, and also ensuring that there's access. So that is actually, uh, it's an opportunity for people who don't have access, but also an opportunity for business development, certainly, is all the the billions of people who don't have electricity or do not have access to. The one thing I think came out of this report, though, for me, is that we have been having a lot of energy nerd arguments on Twitter and other places around around whether solar and wind can actually get there and nuclear and like whether we're all you know like just fundamentally bad at, at energy engineering and um and I think this report put that to bed. I think this report basically said... The that, NREL report you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, with Fraunhofer and others. Like, right. I think this report basically said that the innovations necessary to integrate, you know, 80% penetration of um, renewables um, will come online at the time that they're needed. That they're not necessarily at full maturity in 2017, but that as we reach higher and higher penetration levels, that those technologies will be maturing at the same time scale and will be available to be integrated at this at the appropriate time, such that we'll be able to hit these high integration um, numbers. Which is something that I don't think the MIT folks are saying. Um, I don't think that some of the other folks who have been detractors of this vision. Um, have been saying that they've actually been introducing doubt into that vision. Totally disagree. I mean, what doubt are they? They're saying that lithium-ion batteries, um, diurnal storage, solar and wind can get us most of the way, but you need some sort of flexible baseload and grid management technologies to get the last 30% of decarbonization. And so I don't think that this report made a judgment on that at all. They they are saying, uh, the detractors are saying that, that that while those technologies may technically exist, that they're not actually cost-effective to deploy, and that a more traditional framework of sort of base load integrated with um, variable renewable energy would be a more preferable outcome. And I think that that is something that, like, whether it's true or not, although, you know, I don't think it's true, but whether it's true or not, there's no political support for pushing that vision. There's certainly not political support for pushing that vision in India. I don't think there's any support for pushing that vision in 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 Brazil. Now that you've had so many challenges with Arriva and EDF, I don't think you see a lot of support for that vision in Europe. And so I do think that NREL and Fraunhofer are basically saying that this vision of having a more familiar-looking grid that's decarbonized from the 1970s is not something that we're on track to reaching. In fact, we're on track to reaching 5 to 10 terawatts of solar, which will then be paired with wind, which will then be paired with these technical solutions, and will actually get us to high penetrations of renewables. And I think it's important for us to say that emphatically, so we can get to the business of figuring out the policy hurdles and the finance hurdles and all the other stuff that we need to support that vision. I mean, you're, you're kind of assuming this rational approach to market design and policy that somehow uh, that because these technologies are are ready to go that they'll scale up accordingly with with costs. Nothing about and like, my life. Look at has California. Been... We just had a, well, we just had a <laughs> conversation about the mess in California. So re- whether or not the technologies are ready, like we have to have smart policy design. They didn't make a judgment on how the market design itself. Um, so if these technologies are ready, you can still have a 
super messy market, and you can do it no, the wrong way. It's not about being messy. Like, I mean, nothing about my life or this industry's trajectory has been rational. So, like, I don't think that there's, like, a presumption of rationality. What, what I'm saying is, is, that, is that this, this um, introduction of doubt around whether the technologies are really ready to support this um, high-penetration framework causes us to um, have to do 10 times the amount of work on our side to overcome that doubt to be able to win in these public service commissions and in these planning documents. It's not, like, it would be far better for us to be able to settle this issue on the technical side so that we can get to work on focusing on how do you deal with inequity issues, how do you deal with, like, you know, like some of the other things that we have to do to get UBS not only to write reports, but actually inject a bunch of money. Um, and so, like, I think that it'd be better if we can just settle this as opposed to continue to arguing, argue the technical stuff, right? And, and then we never really get to these other pieces because the other pieces only come from those parties when they believe the technical pieces are settled. I mean, there are some things that we're leaving out here. We're kind of ta we're talking about real-time balancing, day-to-day -day balancing. There are, if you have 20% solar, you have major seasonal swings in solar generation, right? During the middle of the winter, solar generation is going to be completely different than the middle of summer. So you need to start thinking about things like seasonal storage. How do you shift industrial processes? How do you develop power to gas? Is it underground storage? And these are things that I think that's the type of stuff that folks at MIT and the people who you're calling detractors are thinking about. And they're saying, like, we can't solve this with variable wind, solar, and lithium-ion batteries. We just can't do it. You know, we can do a lot of it, but we can't do all of it. But why would you need to prescribe that? Why don't you just say, we need this, these type of characteristics and this type of performance and come and bring your solutions and make the market actually competitive and let people come and bring their solutions within certain parameters but not be prescriptive about what you... What you, what you put out there. You could combine wind and solar and a bunch of other stuff too, but it doesn't mean that you have to tell people that that's, that that's what you it, need. That's the it's, hope, right? Well, but California yeah. was being prescriptive. California, well, look, California, one of the original bills that was proposed was 100% renewable energy, well, right? Look, You're being I mean, prescriptive about the types of technologies you want on the grid, not, and you don't want that. I'm not worried about that piece of it. I mean, California's been prescriptive around what technologies get SGIP rebates, right? That's the more prescriptive part of California. I think that, I'll give you an example of what, like, I think Catherine's saying that is not happening. Like, so Walmart has decided that they're going to convert all of their forklifts at their distribution centers into fuel cells, right? Amazon just announced a $600 million deal with Plug Power to do the same thing. Those fuel cells are getting um, hydrogen from, like, hydrogen that's getting... Uh, delivered to the site from Praxair, right? Instead of actually doing that, if they actually just had an electrolyzer on site that actually just converted water or something like that into hydrogen, and they just did it every time wholesale prices became negative or low, they said, great, we're going to make hydrogen, right, on site. It, the cost of actually storing hydrogen at their facility is practically zero. Like, whether the tank is this big or it's that big doesn't matter. And they can do that. But there is no price signal by which they can get paid to do that. They have no access to wholesale power via the wholesale power markets to do that, right? And so, so all of these technologies, whether it's that specific one I just mentioned or the other 50 that I didn't mention, um, don't really have the right to complete their vision, right? And the same thing's true with electric vehicles, electric buses, electric garbage trucks, you know, all of these technologies that and frankly, are being deployed at scale in China, but aren't being deployed at scale in California. Um, 
don't really have a process by which to be done, right? And so, so that, to me, is, is the part that I'm frustrated by, because instead we're arguing about whether solar and wind should be scaled up versus you know, natural gas, uh, fast ramp you know, facilities or whatever it is, as opposed to arguing about how we actually have this competition around the integration services, yeah. uh, which is what Catherine's talking and about. And how can you monetize all those stacked values? Mm. Um, we got to get into the third topic here, which is a roundup of some of the news stories that we're following here. And um, I want to help people understand how they should feel about some of the uncertain news. Um, and so I think we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, yesterday we talked a lot about the trade case, and I think we got some great information from John Smirno and Sia. Um, but I do want to start with that. So let's kind of go down rapid fire here. Catherine, how worried about the trade case should we be? Worried? <laughs> um, no, I was really glad to hear the um, both John and Abby yesterday talking about this and Sia really stepping up and making sure that we're protecting the industry because that's really important. I mean, I hope they don't take it up. I'm not a trade expert, but I definitely think it's something that we need to invest in and make sure we stand up for the industry. Jigger? We're not on track to solving this Geneva thing. And so for those of you in the room who have something that you can contribute to trying to figure out how to solve it. We desperately need you. This, this deal is going to come down to the next three weeks, and um, it's not, we're not even close to figuring it out. Tax reform and a change in tax policy. How worried should people be? I always say, Ahab, sharpen your spear. The white whale is coming soon. It's like tax reform, really. Um, it, we'll, we'll probably, we may get a corporate tax cut. Yeah, that may that may be true. Um, I mean, I'm hearing there may be some appetite of doing a little bit of repatriation um, in exchange for some infrastructure funds and infrastructure, you know, some kind of a tax credit. That would be really fun to work on. That's what I think of as an opportunity. Um, I think as far as the tax credits go, I think people do not want to raise that issue again. Everything I'm hearing, even from the chairman of Ways and Means, is like, you guys were done. As Abby said, we were already reformed. Why unreform That's a good us? line, too. Yeah. We're already reformed. We're already ref we've been <laughs> tax reformed. We have. I, I think the 10% in perpetuity, you know, if they really want to kind of nickel and dime, that may be something they'd go after. But I haven't heard any of that talk um, in various serious terms. So I think that is less uh, of a concern than just the general, what is the general tax structure going to be like? Two words, special prosecutor. <laughs> um, Jigger, the decline in growth in the solar industry, more specifically the residential solar industry. I think it shows a real lack of leadership on the solar industry's part to reallocate their resources. I think they've just gotten so lazy with sort of the decisions that they made in the last three years around where to chase customers, that they haven't unlocked more niches. There's a lot of people who are suffering under unbearably high electricity costs from utilities who are mismanaged in this country. And we've got to figure out how to continue to innovate in, this country, in, in our industry to serve those customer bases, whether it's low-income folks who have great FICO scores or whether it's affordable housing complexes or whether it's other folks. We've, in fact, gone the opposite direction. We're now like, well, we don't want to do CNI unless it's a minimum of 750 kilowatts. Like, when did that happen? How do, how do we get to being an industry who doesn't want to deal with 50 to 100 kilowatt churches or 200 kilowatts on, like, reasonably sized rooftops? Like, suddenly, all of those projects are persona non grata. And, like, those are all 
growth opportunities, as Nicole Litvak has shown through her work um, and others. And so I think that if we have a growth problem in this country, it's because we have a leadership problem within our industry um, around reallocating sales resources towards customers who are in more pain than the ones that they're, they've been chasing the last few years. Catherine, Rick Perry's baseload study. So I'm not as worried about that as the trade case, but I am still worried about it. I, I think it's one of those things that creates a bunch of false, it asks the wrong questions, it creates a bunch of false narratives about baseload. Um, it drives people apart. It's going to come up. We know what the conclusions are basically going to be. And it's just a drip, drip, drip. And the next thing you know, you got the Grand Canyon. I mean, I think we need to really push back hard. We need to make sure that we have the facts ready to go um, and the right bibliographies ready for people to see so that this doesn't trickle down into FERC and into Congress and EPA um, because they're kind of all on the same page about what they want to do and the fossil plants that they want to prop up. At the same time, DOE is doing a flexibility workshop in July, and I know a bunch of people submitted um, abstracts to present there, and they're going to do a report on flexible resources, so that's good. I think maybe that the people who are writing the baseload report are less aware of that, that effort that was already ongoing, um, but I'm a little worried about it. Jigger, uh, actually, do go baseload study first. Do you care? No, it's no. not a defined term. <laughs> it, I, it is a term that exists, though. You have said that it doesn't exist. There is a exist, textbook from a, 2002. A, a listener sent us a textbook with I'd the like term baseload in it. Though. I'd like to get rid of the term. Baseload doesn't, it, it literally is not a defined term. Like, I mean, in general, natural gas generators and coal power plants have so many unplanned outages that they're not actually the reliable generators everybody thinks they are. And so there's all sorts of, like, you know, planning that has to be done around having backups and this and that, whatever else. And so um, I just... I'm tired of folks like with this false narrative around these these technologies are, you know, foundational technologies that really like are the backbone of the grid and these other ones are not and that's just all horseshit. California's solar eclipse. How worried should we be? I think it's a great teaching moment. We should all have those like things where we like, you know, I, like little paper things we made in third Everybody grade. goes outside with their little... We're like, you know, we could look straight in, straight at it. I think it would be fun. Look, oh, they're going to lose, what, 80 megawatts a, a minute, something like that? I can't remember what the, the number is, but it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and then ramp up 90 I mean, Germany handled it, right? Like, yeah. So... Yeah, I don't, look, I certainly don't think it's going to be a problem this time around. Um, and I think in the future it could be mitigated by having greater coordination with Bonneville Power Administration. I mean, they've got... So, like, the corridor between British Columbia and California for hydropower is gigantic. And the fact that, that Bonneville Power Administration refuses to have any sort of, like, rational conversations around how to use the great hydro battery to, like, you know, provide balancing with California is ridiculous. And so I'm hoping that the curtailment in California um, in the next 12 months will force solar owners, you know, to actually pay somebody instead of like sitting back on their heels to create an actual working group to like solve this politically. This really just requires the two senators from, from Washington and Oregon to threaten the Bonneville Power Administrator's job and say, look, if you don't figure this out and don't, like spread it, don't stop spreading misinformation, like we're going to replace you. And then, and then when like, you know, he's like, oh, actually, no, I want to keep my job. Then you start getting a negotiation with Jerry Brown, and then there's actually a deal that gets struck. It's ridiculous that like that we're in this, we're having this conversation at all. Like this is, this is something that we know how to do. NREL did a report on how exactly to do this five years ago. Like this is not, 
This is not something, I mean, I think NREL's report was actually written for how to integrate 10,000 megawatts of wind into Washington State and Oregon, which Bonneville said was not possible, but that same exact report answers this question. Catherine, the Paris climate deal, will or will the U.S. exit or not? So, I mean, if you're really trying to be rational, you would say it would be completely foolish. Um, Senator Murkowski, who is the chair of Senate Energy and Natural Resources, is going to talk to Ivanka about it. I don't know what difference that will make because it's the president that makes the decision, and he's capricious. I don't know how they're going to do it. I mean, Tillerson's out there pretty much saying things that would lead you to believe that we're on track to stay in. I think it's like a crisis that it would be of our own creation that we don't need to do, but boy, we've been doing that a lot recently, so I don't know. Hope we stay in. Are they going to meet on QVC? <laughs> well, while Ivanka's selling her wares, let's talk about energy policy. All right, so we need to wrap up the show. Last one, though, is the Tesla roof going to be just a luxury product or a, eventually a mainstream energy solution? What do you think, Jigger? Obviously, a luxury product, still unproven, but cost estimates that have come in have been um, lower than than expected. So is it a meaningful product long term? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I don't know whether they win in the BIPV space, but I definitely think that um, there are a lot of potential solar homeowners who want something that looks more integrated into their roof than the traditional solar PV system that I think is beautiful. Um, so, like, I do think that that, um, I, I do think Tesla is doing an extraordinary job of bringing uh, a product to the table that my parents know about. Um, and so, like, that's good. And then hopefully when my parents decide what to buy, they'll actually choose between three or four different BIPV providers and not just Tesla, so Sunroof. Um, but I'm, yeah, I, I think it's a good development. All right, let's tell our listeners something they don't know to finish off the show. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, so there was a Brookings report that you all covered in GTM on uh, cleantech VC investment going down. And, you know, VC investment in cleantech has taken a little bit of a roller coaster ride anyway. You know, it, it, was, it went up after uh, Gore's book came out um, and on climate, and then it took a plummet in 2008 during the financial crisis, and it's been coming back up, and it's kind of taken another dive down. And part of this is, um, you know, it's, it's less money. The size of projects has declined. Um, the number of deals have gone down. And then also what's been funded um, would come to fruition with much uh, shorter time horizon. So they're not, so it's a lot of soft, you know, software solutions rather than hardware solutions. Um, I think to me this leads to really making sure that we prop up the R&D funding at ARPA-E and the labs at NREL, at the universities, to make sure that we continue um, coming out with innovation because if the VC sector isn't going to take that on, uh, we still need the government to be involved to make sure we have solutions in the pipeline. Jager, what do you got for a story? Um, Well, two things. One is that um, uh, several of us in New York City have started a CEO a dinner group, which we're going to probably be rolling out to San Francisco and D.C. here pretty soon. Um, I do think that this industry does a really poor job of, like, thinking about its broader responsibilities around, you know, whether it's the 5 to 10 terawatt goal or others, like, sort of how we actually act like, you know, the um, business leaders that we believe ourselves to be, um, to have a broader responsibility to our communities than just, you know, sort of 
growth of our companies for 25% a year or whatever. Um, so that's happening. If CEOs are interested in participating, they should just you know, send me an email about that. Um, and the story that, that I wanted to talk about was uh, Ford announced that they were going to cut 10% of their global workforce. Um, the explanation that they gave for it was around like used cars and the overhang of used cars and new cars. But they, the other piece that they've been talking about is that they really do believe that their entire business model is going to be um, disrupted by, you know, Uber and Lyft and you know, car sharing and self-driving vehicles and that kind of stuff. Um, and I thought that it was a really big deal that they sort of said, okay, we need to start shoring up our company so that we'll be relevant in that in that world, and so we have to like free up this money to invest in innovation. And it's striking to me that the utility companies aren't doing the same in in our sector, right? That they're not actually recognizing that they are also going to be like so disrupted that they should be laying off 10% of their workforce, outsourcing those you know functions to companies like the ones represented in this room, and you know doing the same thing. Um, but it's been interesting to see Ford come to this realization. Any utilities in the room, Jigger will be backstage after the, the conversation. Uh, mine is a bit of s- two, two bits of music-related news, one bit of sad news. Of course, uh, Chris Cornell, the, head of, the uh, lead singer for Soundgarden, died. And a, 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 a reader on Twitter alerted me to uh, a 1991 music video, the song Jesus Christ Pose, which featured a bunch of California's early wind projects cut in. So I just wanted to give a shout-out to that music video. And uh, adding to that, the band Raptor Command, which is the Elon uh, Musk-themed heavy metal group, is out with a new single. So last in one of our recent live shows, we talked about uh, their hit single, Elon, A Champion for Humanity. And their new single is called Fusion Reactor in the Sky. And they describe it as a loud and proud salute to Elon's tireless efforts in transitioning the world to sustainable energy specifically with Solar City and Tesla Energy. So relevant to this crowd, you can go check it out. That's the show, folks. My co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. You can find us anywhere you get podcasts. And, of course, we have all our back episodes on greentechmedia.com. And to our listeners here and out there, you can always contact us with your story ideas. We're at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Check out our other, po- our other podcasts that I do with Shale Khan called The Interchange. And thanks so much for being here and for listening back home.